This is the Athletic Lab Sport Performance Podcast, episode number four. Our guest today is Ryan Horn. Ryan is the Director of Performance for the Wake Forest University men's basketball team. He's in his third year with the team and spent previous years coaching at Tulsa, VCU, Robert Morris, and Liberty University. This episode covers challenges as a collegiate strength coach, managing fatigue at home and on the road, as well as managing detraining throughout the collegiate year. We discuss aspects of his return to play and return to performance continuum, and lastly, if and how to implement plyometrics for basketball players within the season. Hey Ryan, thanks jumping for jumping on this call with me today and doing the podcast. Um, you know, give us give the audience a little bit of an idea of you know how you got to big time D one ACC basketball, and you know how many years it took you to get there and what you've done along the way. Yeah, no problem at all. I appreciate you guys having me on. Uh, you, know, you guys do a lot for the profession. I really appreciate uh, Athletic Lab and all the episodes you put on so far have been phenomenal so hopefully we can uh, keep that going but yeah I essentially started my career as an intern uh, at Robert Morris University uh, in Pittsburgh under Todd Hammer actually gave my first summer internship um, new throughout high school and throughout college just playing sports that you know being a strength conditioning coach is, is what I wanted to do um, so I was lucky enough to get the internship with Coach Hammer uh, after I left Robert Morris. I was a graduate assistant at Virginia Commonwealth University with Tim Contos. I was a GA for about eight months there, worked with a variety of teams, kind of got my feet wet a little bit. Uh, and then I accepted a full-time position uh, at VCU as well and was a full-time assistant there uh, for over four years. Uh, then I accepted a role uh, with football and men's basketball women's basketball and some other Olympic sports at the University of Tulsa. Uh, was there for three seasons, worked for two different ADs, two different strength conditioning coordinators, two different basketball coaches during that time. So uh, it was definitely a good experience um, to work with a, a multitude of people um, and get that done. We were lucky enough to be successful there with Coach Manning. Uh, we accepted the position here at Wake Forest in 2014, and we're currently starting our third season, uh, just finished up our summer period, um, and primarily I just work with men's basketball here. So that's kind of been my uh, my road, so to speak. I've been lucky uh, to work for some great professionals. I've been lucky um, to not have had to have moved a ton and bounced around. Uh, I've been blessed to be able to take the jobs that kind of felt comfortable to me from a leadership standpoint. Uh, yeah, I couldn't be more pleased with where I'm at right now. Yeah, and so you, you know, you mentioned how many coaches you've kind of worked with, and how many collegiate programs you have worked with. Um, you know, how has your ideas and philosophies changed along those years, and maybe with different programs, and maybe state maybe your current philosophy now as well in terms of uh, training? Yeah, I think training. I think it's one of those things that makes our profession. Um, really it makes the profession what it is. I think the constant evolution of just reading, researching, applying different information and 
using that information to kind of formulate um, your philosophy and your principles, so to speak, of how you develop your athletes is what makes this job exciting because it's constantly changing uh, on a day-to-day basis depending on not only who you work with from an athlete perspective, but also the coaching staff that you work with and for um, and more of a you know a support role. Um, you have to be able to remain fluid and dynamic with how you program and how you train these athletes. So I think early on in my career, uh, starting off, I worked with field hockey in uh, track and field. I had never seen field hockey in my life. Uh, I thought it was only played on ice. Uh, and then, uh, you know, got the phone call that, hey, you're going to work with field hockey, you're going to work with distance runners, sprinters, throwers. You know, so track and field, I, I had a good idea on that. A lot of what I was reading at the time uh, was track and field influenced uh, as far as strength, speed, and power cons- was concerned. So that, that kind of felt like a, a natural transition. But when it came to field hockey, Yeah, it's, it's uh, you know, you guys are, sounds like you're all on the same page. And I think that might be one of the biggest challenges that most, say, collegiate strength coaches have is that 
Um, but say, other than that, what what do you find that your biggest challenge has been in your career, you know, with collegiate coaching and maybe just currently as well? I mean, you're going to have this, you know, at a private school, we're at a small private school, um, so there's not a lot of class options. So uh, scheduling, uh, things of that nature uh, have always been an issue when you're dealing with uh, a large number of, of collegiate athletes. You have to be able to understand that what you do has to complement not only the sport itself as far as their development and their improvements on the court or the field is concerned, but also in their daily lives. Um, it's usually not the, the one or two hours that we're with them that's put them in the hole. Uh, it's the other 22 hours during the day that these guys are under an extreme amount of stress, um, both in their, in their own personal lives, but also in the classroom academically and on the court, um, dealing with whether success, failure, anything else. You know, your ability as a collegiate strength conditioning coach to not only account for the stress that you're placing on the athletes during your energy system sessions or during your strength conditioning session, I mean, those things are, are easily, uh, you know, easily quantifiable, um, so to speak. It, it's the time outside, the ability to have a good relationship with each individual athlete uh, and your coaching and your support staff. I mean, that's what the biggest challenge is, is truly being able to communicate at a high level. Um, with sports medicine, with your team doctors, and with your coaching staff to make sure there's no surprises and to make sure everybody's on the same page, the standards, the expectations for the program, and the vision for the program is shared uh, by everybody that has their hands, uh, so to speak, uh, in the pot as far as how you develop and train these young men uh, and continue to develop them. So I think that's that's the biggest challenge. I mean, uh, you know, the training's the easy part. You know, being there with the guys, training them, uh, our staff. I mean, those are things that we love to do, um, but accounting and be able to, you know, attack those outside influences and be able to adjust is something that, you know, forces you to get outside of your ego, uh, forces you to think big picture um, and keep that perspective at all times. Yeah. And are there any specific strategies that you guys are currently using to manage the stress and fatigue, say, outside of your control? Like, uh, you know, you mentioned school and you mentioned home life and work if they have it um you know are you guys doing anything to manage any of those things or kind of keep those things in check yeah i think i think we're doing a lot of things uh i think one of the most important things and maybe the most important uh wellness question variable uh wellness questionnaire available is just speaking with your ass speaking with your athletes and and knowing how they feel um the question how are you uh can go a long way and, and developing a relationship and a, and a dialogue with your student athletes to really feel um, what their um, position is as far as how their body feels, how they're adapting to stress, and, and what the direction they think they're moving in. Uh, so I think besides that, um, we've been blessed to have great support. We've done a, our head coaches done a great job fundraising for our program. Um, so we have a lot of resources from a sports science standpoint, whether it's HRV. And Omega Wave, that's something that we're going to get into more this year because um, we have the staff in place to run it, uh, I feel, at a more effective and higher level to kind of figure out the cost of doing business um, from a physiological standpoint. Uh, so we will do, we will be doing more work with HRV uh, and looking at that on a daily basis and understanding, you know, what type of damage are we causing and what are we going to have to clean up later on uh, and be able to account for that. Um, we're also utilizing catapult tracking um, that's probably one of the main forms of internal and external load monitoring that we do um, and we're utilizing our catapult tracking data to formulate almost a 
is a big topic right now with acute and chronic training load, but we're looking at training stress balance and having an idea of what our long-term stress adaptation is compared to what we're doing on an acute or a day-to-day -day basis and trying to educate our coaches. Um, Dr. Dr. Gavitt had a great quote, you know, talking about training load. It's not necessarily what your training load is, it's how you get there. Uh, and I think it's understanding with our coaches and monitoring our fatigue and our readiness and understanding, okay, here's where we're at, here's what we've been doing, you know, graphically, how can we show our coaches that information to educate them uh, so that makes sense to let them know that if we go hard on Monday and Tuesday, uh, giving them one day off isn't like a reset button on the Xbox. You can't just push the reset button and the next thing you know, they're fine because they had a day off or you adjusted one practice, uh, getting them to realize it's a cumulative endeavor. Uh, these guys are building up uh, and, and depleting these stores over time. Um, so it's not a quick fix and it never will be. So our catapult tracking data is extremely important uh, for utilizing it. Um, we perform subjective wellness questionnaires. Um, we also have, it's an interactive one that we use on our, our Sparta track um, database. We use Sparta for our force plate analysis, but we also have a module on there to look at daily wellness and daily readiness. And one of the things we do on there is a basic wellness questionnaire. Uh, we also have an interactive uh, figure diagram on there where our guys can give pain and soreness levels on different parts of our, their body. And then we're using what they're getting treatment on uh, with our athletic training staff. All that information is being filtered in uh, to that hub so we can have a good idea of all the different um, levels um, at which our athletes are experiencing pain, fatigue, or, or even increases in performance depending on how they're feeling on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, so we utilize that as well. We utilize force plate scans in season every seven to, seven to ten days to see how our athletes are interacting with gravity mechanically, how efficient they are, are they decreasing uh, on a force plate as far as a power perspective is concerned and how they're mechanically expressing force, are they tired, uh, is the stress and, and all those things we're able to look at those factors and have a good idea uh, of what our athletes are under but then again each end, each individual athlete's different uh, each game's different practices so on and so forth so we try to remain uh, as fluid and as dynamic as we can uh, and adjust and adapt so yeah yeah and you know I think a lot of the conversations you know revolve around managing stress and I think rightfully so but at the same time say in the collegiate realm when you have players going home for breaks and you know going home for summer how are you managing like the detraining effects um, you know or potential detraining effects yeah I, I think when you look at your calendar uh speak with a lot of collegiate strength coaches and private strength coaches and the NCAA does a great job of uh, factoring in our deloads for us. Uh, they let us know when the time off is going to come in these different points of the year where our guys aren't under the same amount of stress but those things change from year to year. For instance this summer uh, we had a foreign trip in August. We went over to the Bahamas. We could do that every four years. Um, so our summer training period was extended by over six weeks. Uh, so typically that's six weeks we never get. Um, so when we look at our training year and our annual plan for this year, it was extended uh, compared to what we've had the last four years. Um, so when you take a step back and look at your year, from day one we have to understand that with college basketball, um, it's one of the longest seasons in collegiate sports. Our guys are basically going from September hopefully until April if you're taking care of business and playing the NCAA tournament. Uh, it's a very long season. Our guys also don't get Christmas break. They don't get Thanksgiving break. Um, if they're playing well, they don't get 
in spring break, uh, and roughly they get two weeks off in May, they get two weeks off in August typically, uh, and then there's a couple more days scattered throughout the year. So really the opportunity to detrain or have issues with that, um, fortunately and unfortunately, uh, doesn't present itself as a big of a problem as it once was. Just because we have contact and we have so much training and development time with these players as far as when we have access to them, uh, we don't necessarily experience that as much. One thing that we do before breaks, uh, we make sure that this training stimulus is a high enough stimulus going into those breaks where our guys, no matter what they do during that two-week time frame, uh, that it allows for some super compensation and some adaptation to occur uh, during those layoffs. So we try to formulate our training programs and use that time as much as possible as we continue to train them during the summer and spring blocks, which is our main windows for speed, strength, and power development. Uh, we make sure we set up our training blocks that go right into those breaks so our guys can come back uh, and realize those gains at a much more effective level. Yeah, and you know, to go back to, say, uh, you know, talking about you know, stress levels and, and everything that factors into that. In a conference like the ACC, while I do think, say, teams around the, the central or even in general North Carolina area are lucky in that, you know, you've got three or four teams, if I'm thinking right, that are all right in the same area. But say if you guys, how are you guys handling traveling outside of the state? And, you know, how are you guys altering training uh, to allow, you know, heavy travel instances? Yeah, so in the ACC, you know, we're lucky um, that, you know, like we said before, our, our farthest trip is to Syracuse. Um, so, you know, you look, you're going to Syracuse, you're going to, you know, Florida State, Boston College. Um, those are longer trips uh, that we have to be able to manage. But once you get into the year, um, when you really look at it, I mean, we're playing anywhere from two to three games a week. Uh, like typically two years ago, we went to Syracuse. The game started at 7 o'clock at night. The game went into double overtime, and our guys can step back on campus until after 3 a.m., and they were expected to be at class at 8 a.m. that day. Uh, they weren't excused. It was not an excused absence. So we're dealing with a lot of uh, issues as far as understanding that during the year, um, especially on the front end of the year, during those September, October, November months and then leading into the conference season, we have to continue to develop these guys and continue to prepare them. Uh, that's a big window for us. We're able to continue to train. We're con you know, able to continue to uh, add more stress on them from a, from a weight room perspective because we're in our preseason period uh, getting into our, our out-of-conference schedule, and we have to continue to, to kind of you know, push the gas pedal, so to speak, as we get into our conference play. Just because once you get into conference, I mean, you're playing two games a week, um, you're getting into the tail end of the season, and, uh, you know, you're, a lot of your guys are, are, are very, uh, you know, you got to be very conservative um, with how you're, how you're training these athletes. You have to make sure you maximize that initial window. Um, so really, when we look at our training week, um, we don't operate on a seven-day schedule. Um, we're not you know, a football team or a collegiate football team that plays every Saturday or plays every Thursday, and you can tailor each individual week. Uh, it changes from week to week as far as game days are concerned. So our main goal uh, from a training perspective to account for that is to understand we have different workouts in place. So when we get in, like you give an example of the conference. So when we get in the conference, you know, we have a primary day where we're focusing more on our strength-dominant lifts or our slower lifts. Now, during the conference season, we'll start to pick movements that are less structurally taxing, but that's a day for us where we can strain and we can expose the CNS to a little bit more of a, a high force, you know, low velocity. 
velocity type movement uh, to maintain some of those maximal strength qualities. Um, and then another day during the week, we'll focus more on, you know, the, a la Dan Baker, uh, more of a, a speed strength or more of a dynamic effort type session. Uh, to peak them or to, to get them in a, in a ready state to play the next game further in the week uh, with minimal time under tension to kind of take away some of the soreness and stiffness and novelty that can take place during that time of year. Um, so when we get into that point of the season, we normally have, depending on the minutes that are being played, anywhere from two to three training sessions that those guys are exposed to. And then from each individual, we have to make adjustments based off you know, current status, uh, injury history, how many minutes these guys are playing, uh, what is the academic schedule, and what does the travel schedule look like. So, yeah, it's, uh, it, it's a pain in the butt. <laughs> Uh, with a lot of those things and you're juggling a lot of different factors but once again it comes down to communication it comes down to knowing your athletes and, and having a system in place that you can easily modify and tweak based on the athletes needs yeah and I think um, you know when you talk about you know say just to move on to a separate question here is um, inevitably you're gonna have an athlete that you know goes down with a knock whether it be an ankle knee um, or anything like that um, how are you guys handling your return to play athletes? Are there any metrics that, you know, it sounds like you guys are using a lot of sports science technology and a lot of just general metrics to track different variables. Um, are you looking at, uh, say, return to play as a percentage of, um, say, what they were before the injury? Or are you guys looking at any specific metrics to dictate when they're ready to come back? Yeah, I think when you look at the, the return to play process, um, you know, we kind of separated it into two individual phases. We, you know, we call it there's a return to play period uh, after the initial injury or after the surgery or whatever the athlete's under. Uh, there's a return to play period where that athlete has been deemed, you know, fit for duty um, based off what the medical staff, what the surgeon, uh, what our physical therapist, and what our director of sports medicine. Based on their evaluation, this athlete has, has been cleared to participate in sports-specific drills. Um, I think early on, you know, that, that can be misconstrued that these athletes are ready to, to perform, and, and that's just not the case. There's, there's, a, there's a transition period after that initial return-to-play process that, that we kind of view as a return to performance. Um, you know, there's a big difference between participating and dominating. Uh, so the ability to quantify benchmarks uh, throughout that return to play and throughout that return to perf uh, performance process is a crucial part uh, of what we do. Um, so starting off, for instance, I'll, I'll use a specific example. We had an athlete last year uh, that had, had an athlete uh, step on uh, his foot and he had a fracture uh, in his foot. He had a guy step on it. He was coming off a ball screen and he fractured his foot. Um, that athlete had, in, had surgery on that foot and then coming back from that injury, you know, typically from a fractured foot, uh, this will kind of give you a rundown of how our staff works, but, you know, typically from a, a, a fracture-related injury, um, it's going to be an x-ray, the athlete's going to have surgery, uh, they're going to be cast, and then from the cast, they'll transition into a walking boot, and then a walking into a soft cast, and then so on and so forth. And then during that time, the athlete's doing, you know, a variety of upper body movements and some upper body conditioning to maintain fitness, and he's getting x-rays depending on how he's tolerating the stress and the load in the foot uh, and see how that, that bone 
his healing and see how the pin is taking as far as his foot's concerned. So over time, we apply some stress. You know, during that time, it's mostly from the physical therapist and from our sports medicine staff. And then routinely, bi-weekly or whatever the surgeon wants to do, you know, we're getting looked at and there's getting x-rays and then they're transitioning through. So once an athlete was kind of cleared um, to step on the court um, by the surgeon to do some sport-related drills, you know, during that time, we have done sway balance testing uh, on our force plate scan. Uh, we use Sparta for a force plate. Uh, we were doing a lower body sway analysis because he wasn't able to have impact on the foot. But once he was able to bear weight on that foot, um, you know, and he had his percentage of weight bearing was clear to stand on one foot. We started looking at his basically his posture and his stability and the strength of the foot and the ankle and the leg to kind of see where they were at. You know, and initially right after surgery, the athlete was mobile and they were weak. We need to increase strength. We need to increase stiffness coming out of that coming out of that injury. So we do the sway balance test. Uh, once he was cleared to start moving and doing some jogging and some moving, uh, we looked at our catapult data. And what we tried to do is go back and look at that athlete's training history. So that specific athlete, I had two years worth of tracking on that athlete from an internal and external perspective. And we were able to go back and look at his averages as far as workload was concerned, both uh, total player load, uh, player load per minute, uh, and also what he was handling from a distance and speed perspective on a weekly and in 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 an individual session basis and kind of formulate an average based on what he needed to be able to do to practice and what he needed to be able to work up to from that perspective. So we started them off uh, both on duration and we live tracked during our sessions. We could control the total intensity and volume of the drills that he was doing. So he started off at you know less than 60, you know, 30 minutes, 45 minutes, and then 60 minutes. And then we were tracking his player load during that, that time frame to kind of get an idea of where he was at. And we would cut him off for that day. Um, so actually, when he was cleared to participate in drills, it was another three weeks on top of that. Once he did his single leg landing test on the force plate and then he did his normal two foot uh, jump scan and then his core work was conducive to what he needed to be able to do we built him into that so it was another three week time piece uh, before we got him back so having those benchmarks throughout that process and then being able to have everybody on the same page both the orthopedic surgeon and our sports medicine staff we could sit at the same table we could go over these metrics we can go over these benchmarks and have a much clearer understanding of what this athlete needs to be able to do so we take that guesswork out of it is it a perfect science no because the instance of re-injury still presents itself in certain cases but it gives us a much more manageable uh way to do it during that time frame yeah and um you know are, are you i guess in terms of say you looked you said you looked at a lot of averages um in the player's history past uh -huh. history um are you are you looking for like is there any concrete number or is it very different for individuals like 80 percent of their previous 90 percent of their previous or yeah i think yeah like for that individual athlete i mean we were we started at roughly it was 50 to 60 percent of his previous load and we were working into that now the type of movement that he was doing i mean you're trying to get them to that specific point so for the force plate scans you know we're looking for a symmetry we're looking for the injured leg to be at least within 80 percent of the non-injured limb if that makes sense no yeah that, make, that makes so, perfect sense so we do our, our, our single leg sway balance testing and we do our single leg landing test both of those tests are performed barefooted and and when you look at that test if i have an athlete which he couldn't at the time if I have an athlete that can't hop and land on a force plate single leg and has issues with that from a from a psychological perspective, that's another piece we're not talking about is we have this whole physiological perspective and what he's doing physically, but we also have a psychological piece as well 
that these athletes just want to get back to being who they were before the injury. I want to be me. And they have doubts in place. They have issues psychologically with what their body can do and what it could do before and then how it feels now, especially an athlete that hasn't been injured before, which this athlete hadn't really had extensive injury history. Um, so when you look at this athlete, you know, he could barely land on the plate without he, – he was scared. Um, and, and if an athlete can't do something in a closed – you know, predictable, programmable way, how do we expect him to go on the court and play against another ACC team or practice against our own squad and perform at a high level and, and, and not expect the risk for re-injury to be high? Um, so when we look at a single leg landing, sway balance testing, that's what we were looking at. We're looking at it for being at least within 80%. And as far as the court work was concerned, that was very dynamic and fluid. You know, we had a baseline of 50 to 60% of his previous volume as far as where he could start out at. He could do some 75% or 80% effort, intent, subjectively. And so we would use an RPE scale. How hard do you think you're working? How does it feel? How does his symmetry look um, from limb to limb as far as he leaning? You know, there's a, there's a visual component there to see mechanically how he's moving him. Is he biomechanically sound? Is it something that we're comfortable with? And then there's a lot of discussion. So our sports medicine staff is phenomenal. Uh, our director of athletic training, Greg Collins, and myself would work with that athlete, you know, two-on-one. He would go through the drills, and we were able to pull him and have those discussions. So then after that session, we felt like, okay, there's a little bit of pain setting in, or he's getting fatigued, and his movement efficiency just isn't where it needs to be. Then we can pull that athlete, go back to our catapult data, go back to our external load and our internal load, and see where is he at right now, and then we can build off that. Um, and, you know, and it might be a situation where we went from two on, one off, or one on, one off, and then built him into it. But it takes time, and it takes a lot of discussion and communication because not every athlete is going to respond and heal from an injury the same way. Uh, and it takes time, and, I, and it takes communication, and it takes us the ability to not only show him progress from what he's doing, but also be able to show him numbers along the way. And he's told me this personally. That was a huge confidence booster for him to have this data and have this metrics that he could compare himself and say, you know what, I'm not far off from what I'm, well, I'm ready to go. Um, so those are things where I think we were able to really have a great plan, both not only not only physically, but also psychologically with what we're doing as well. Yeah. And so I'll kind of uh, move move right on to another question that I'll pose that I kind of go back and forth on, especially when you look at basketball, for example, that in games you're basically sprinting, jogging, and jumping. That's pretty much the game, I mean, in a nutshell. I mean, I'm sure there's obviously more to it than that. But if we look at, um, you know, plyos in season, um, I look at it from two ways. Is there's... Uh, you're preparing for the demands of the sport by doing plyos, say, outside of the game. But on the flip side, um, you potentially are, are creating some overuse scenarios. Uh -huh. what, what is your view on, say, in-season plyos, how you guys are using them, or even jump squats for that matter? Uh, you know, I think when you first look at basketball in general, you have to understand, you know, you already kind of you know, gave the breakdown. You took away some of my thunder. <laughs> uh, with, with a two and a half hour practice, aka plyometric session that is basketball, um, you have to look back and now look at the athlete themselves as far as you know which athlete you're working with, what's their training age or training history like, uh, what's been their exposure to stress, so what's their level, like what can they handle, what have they been exposed to, um, and where are we at during that season and during that year, and then go from there. But the biggest thing I think I look at um, from an in-season programming perspective, especially once we get into where we're at right now, 
in that competitive training period, and there has to be a cost-to-benefit ratio. Um, we're a Olympic. Uh, we use you know a good amount of Olympic lifts in our program. Uh, I've been heavily influenced by Al Vermeil and his work, um, and he found that the Olympic lifts, med ball throws, um, that presented a little bit less structurally taxing movements as far as the jumps were concerned. I think we get a huge benefit out of cleaning snatches, jerks, uh, and a much more controllable setting without having to bang their joints up and, and, and move throughout that range of motion but also too our basketball players are already extremely reactive elastic uh, that's what the game is um, they're reactive elastic athletes that when they come in and they'll be reactive uh, reactive elastic athletes when they leave uh, but my athletes are weak um, they're extremely weak and, and to negate the strength component with increasing power uh, with increasing explosiveness and re, you know and increasing resilience uh, and durability with that athlete as far as being able to jump the number of times that some of our guys need to jump I mean we have a practice for instance you know our five men will have over 150 jumps in, in a practice uh, and those aren't all high amplitude jumps, but it's repetitive second chance rebounds offensively and defensively uh, during their individual drills, hook shots, post moves. I mean, these athletes are going through a large amount of stress. Now, a lot of it is medium to moderate intensities, um, and the amplitudes might not be maximal, uh, but those are some things we look at. So from my perspective, you know, I'm a big believer in season. I don't do a large amount of uh, plyometric uh, as far as depth jumps, things of that nature uh, during barbell squat jumps during our competitive period like once we get to December and on uh, we do a lot of that in the off season both in our spring and, and summer period I'm a big believer in that but once we get into the training you know the, the once we get into the uh, competitive period I have to be extremely you know understanding of what these athletes are going through on a day-to-day basis and then adjust uh, appropriately uh, but for us you know we have implemented some box jumps and some other things to take the, and, and some some high jump pit mat jumps uh, to take out some of that uh, structural stress with some of our athletes that aren't getting as many minutes that can handle a little bit more training uh, that's another thing too you look at most of my guys and most of my top tier guys are playing 20 plus minutes a game most of my guards are playing upwards of 28 plus minutes the game they might not have that that ability to be exposed to those type of training stress or stimulus but some of my athletes that are younger or my athletes that aren't playing as much that are playing 15 or less and even under 10 minutes a game then we can fill the gap so to speak because they're not getting that same exposure on on game day uh, but they're still getting it in practice so i think i think it's a double-edged sword i think you have to you know for us Olympic lifts, making sure we're still developing them in the weight room, uh, met ball throws, uh, and then we also maintain our a little bit of maximal sprint volume uh, in our warm-up during the year. That's the thing I don't see a lot of basketball programs doing, uh, but we will do some 10 yards, some 10-yard accelerations and do some sprint work in season just to continue to keep that motor hot and keep that exposure uh, in our program. Um, but those are things we primarily focus on rather than increasing the amount of foot contacts during the year. Sure. Yeah, that makes uh, quite a bit of sense here. And uh, lastly, a uh, question on, um, say, you know, you've got, you've got a squad of uh, 12 or so, and maybe seven, seven or eight see the court on yeah. most teams anyway. Um, how are you handling, say, the other three, four, five guys that don't see minutes or see very few minutes? Are you doing extra fitness with them or extra weight room sessions to kind of get them ready if they are called upon, you know, some action? 
Now, my, my program's a little bit different. I, the last two years, I've had 20 guys on my roster. Uh, this year, I have uh, 16 on the roster, so it's a little bit less. Um, the way I kind of view that is, uh, you know, we know who's in our rotation. Early on in the year, we're going to play more guys. We're going to rotate more bodies into the game, and our lineup's going to be, our rotation's going to be a little bit larger. So we're trying to figure out what type of lineups and what type of players are going to fit best and work together. So early on in the year, uh, Mostly, the guys are on a very similar plan because a lot of their stress is very similar as far as practice is concerned. And once we get out of exhibitions and we start getting into our, our, our regular season, you know, we start to look at minutes uh, and minutes played uh, and having an idea of which level, which program these guys are at. Now, you know everybody can understand that there's some guys that I know aren't going to play. Uh, so, I mean, <laughs> I hate to say that, but it might be a chance at some point. But uh, more often than not, if I was a betting man, which I'm not, uh, you know, we know that their minutes are going to be extremely limited. Uh, then they're going to be on a completely separate program. They're going to be more on a off-season, like our red shirts or something like that. Uh, they're going to be on our off developmental program with more exposures not only to fitness uh, to fill in the gaps from not being able to play the games not only on game day uh, but also getting more resistance training sessions in with me uh, during the week so we typically are walk-ons and our redshirt players which we haven't really had uh, just because we've had to play a lot of young guys we've always been a very young team so not too many of our freshmen that come in redshirt um, but those guys that come in that are in that boat um they have a chance to continue to develop and continue to improve, but also understanding as well, they still have to go to practice. So I can't just say, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to slam them and I'm going to smash them and we're going to kind of push this because they can't necessarily just because they're still being exposed uh, to a large amount of stress during the practice. And for us, I mean, basketball is one of the only sports where you practice for two to three hours and the game only lasts 40 minutes. Uh, you know, so I mean, the games for us, besides the heightened central nervous system and, and a lot of the excitation that happens because of the game, uh, games are almost like recovery. Um, so we try to make sure we, on the road at hotels, we'll go to a commercial gym. We make sure these guys continue to drain, uh, train on game day. If a guy's a redshirt or a walk-on, they can do their fitness work uh, and they can do their, their resistance training session before the game. So I make sure I know what the load is and I know what the guys are going to get for a game load, depending on the position. So I make sure they're at least not getting those gaps in their development. So I'll be able to prescribe uh, an energy systems development session that falls within those guidelines, both from an energy system standpoint and a structural stress uh, component. And then also if a guy plays less than 10 minutes or about 10 to 15 minutes a game or less, uh, those athletes will perform their fitness work after the game, no matter if we win or lose, whatever it is. Uh, we'll get a session with them after the game to kind of fill in those gaps. And then, of course, we're monitoring, you know, our tracking, our heart rate, and go from that route. Um, but a lot of that's just dependent, uh, of course, not only on their game schedule and where we're at in the game schedule, but also when it's being played, um, the age, I find that my freshman, uh, just because playing history for me, uh, you know, I think I was reading the work Darren Burgess spoke about playing history uh, as a great predictor of resilience, uh, just because, we look at guys that have played like a lot of my seniors last year that have four years of, of games under their belt uh, they respond better to stress uh, we didn't see the huge fluctuations or readiness we didn't see the issues and the complaints with general soreness and fatigue because they've already built up a, a tolerance and they're already used to doing that whereas our freshmen we saw many uh, a, a much larger amounts of peaks and valleys both in sleep wellness questionnaires uh, 
you know, force plate scans, uh, velocity-based training numbers, things like that, all those things, you just see they're much, they're like Ferrari with a quarter tank of gas. Uh, there's a lot, a lot more, there's a, there's much more uh, variance with how they, that's because they have a low training history. Um, I really believe that we've talked a lot about readiness today. We've talked a lot about managing fatigue, and I think one of the best ways uh, to improve readiness and manage fatigue is make sure you're preparing them properly in the first place. I think uh, readiness is going to be a slave to preparedness. I think if you don't prepare your athletes for the demand uh, that they're going to be being placed under, then you're going to have a hard time protecting them and have, they're going to have a hard time performing during the year if we're setting them up for failure. So especially with basketball, um, you have to train these kids, you have to develop them, you have to improve resilience, but we have to make sure these guys are getting stronger, uh, they're increasing body armor, and then that works out to be put in uh, when those windows are available. Now those windows are very small. Uh, we were talking to Boo, uh, we were at the athletic lab clinic uh, when we were there and I was talking to Boo about basketball. The window for strength, speed, and power is very, very small, uh, but I think it pays huge dividends with consistent training throughout that calendar year. Yeah, yeah, I would uh, quite agree with that. And so to kind of wrap up here, uh, you and your beard are on Facebook and Twitter. Um, so maybe you can just tell people, <laughs> tell people how to reach you, um, whether email or if you want to, you know, anything you guys are doing now that you want to shout out to, um, feel free to take this time to do that. Yeah, yeah. If anybody has any questions, uh, my email is hornrl at wfu.edu. Uh, you can follow me on all the social media feeds at Ryan Horn four five. Uh, and feel free to reach out if you have any questions. Uh, I appreciate you having me on the show. Uh, I really enjoy uh, doing these podcasts and just kind of sharing information. And I'm glad people are interested uh, in what we do. Um, it's a huge honor for me uh, to get on the phone and, and to talk shop with so many bright minds. And I'm very blessed to do what I do. So I uh, thank you for the opportunity. I thank you for starting uh, the Athletic Lab podcast to give me something else to listen to. Give me something else to listen to. Uh, the guys that you've had on have been phenomenal. Uh, and, and hopefully uh, it continues to do that in the future. Excellent. Well, thanks, man. I appreciate you being a part of it. And thanks no again. Problem. Thank yeah. you.